preparing what to say this morning, I did what I suspect many people do nowadays. Yes, I prayed for inspiration. I read the passage and then I went to my computer and I googled the words water into wine, which is why I can tell you in the USA for just $6.95 you can buy a water into wine kit. <laughs> Creating this simple illusion, it said, utilizes a pH indicator which causes a clear chemical solution to instantly become a red chemical solution. You should not drink these chemicals. <laughs> More practical, but equally dishonest, uh, you can create the illusion with a few drops of red dye in the bottom of a glass. From an unmarked bottle filled with white wine, which your gullible audience is meant to suppose is water, you then pour on the white wine. Now, Sauvignon Blanc is the most effective, as it's so, <laughs> as it's so clear. Of course, the wine instantly turns red, or the alleged water instantly turns into wine. You're advised to use vegetable dye so that you won't poison your audience. Uh, because you should encourage them to taste the authenticity of this transformation. Uh, the person who came up with this idea modestly admits that his trick isn't going to start a religion. Uh, the truth is, though, that I most enjoyed the wacky news story about an inept Italian municipal council. They have a tradition every year to celebrate the end of the grape harvest by replacing the water that runs through their village fountain with wine. Well, someone directed the wine down the wrong pipe. Uh, the fountain continued to run clear, but when villagers turned on their kitchen taps uh, to make a nice cup of tea, or I suppose in their case, espresso, uh, they got wine instead of water. Uh, the report says the locals were startled. Uh, I suspect a fair number of them were pretty delighted as well. Um, and yet, nothing daunted, this morning we're going to see if we can learn how to turn water into wine. Uh, hang on a minute, you say. Uh, that's something Jesus did. Well, yes, he did, and we've just read about it in John's Gospel. But elsewhere in his Gospel, John makes this rather, well, startling observation in chapter 14, verse 12. Uh, John reports Jesus as saying, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things. Than me. So the challenge for us here this morning is like Jesus to turn water into wine. Today, uh, as I've already mentioned, is the last of our series of Sunday morning reflections on the miracles. And all the miracles that uh, we've chosen were reported by St. John in his gospel. 
So it's probably useful to spend a couple of minutes to consider the particular purpose of John's gospel and his recounting of the miracles. It's pretty easy to do this, as John very helpfully tells us exactly what he's doing when he's writing his gospel. John's gospel was compiled when he was an old man. Maybe he was in his 80s or even 90s. When he first met Jesus, he was in his mid-20s. John is far and away the closest witness to Christ and his ministry. The other gospels were written sometimes people by people who hadn't met Jesus, were written before John's, and uh, he would have been familiar with uh, probably with what they'd said. Uh, as an old man, he's had a time to reflect and to see what's happened to the early church that he's been right at the centre of creating. John was closer to Jesus than any other disciple. He'd left the family fishing business just a few days before Jesus performs this first miracle. In fact, he'd been repairing nets by the Sea of Galilee, but put his work down immediately and responded to Jesus' call to become a fisher of men. He was close to Jesus throughout his ministry, next to him, in fact, leaning on Jesus at the Last Supper. He's the only disciple who's present at the start of Jesus' trial. Peter denies Christ, John sticks with him, and later it's John we find at the foot of the cross being asked by Jesus to care for Mary, his mother. One of the first to, do, to meet the risen Lord, John has been at the centre of it all. He's known as the disciple that Jesus loved. John knows everything. Well, he's done a lot of travelling since the early days. He's no longer living in Israel. Uh, he's almost certainly in Ephesus. And here he is as an old man. He realises that there's the need to write an explanation of the life of Christ that will explain Jesus and his message in a way that will be understandable and relevant to people who were brought up with the Greek, not the Jewish way, of looking at things. Now, unlike the Jews, who had a long tradition and acceptance of God as a creator of mankind, the philosophical approach of Greek thought was completely different. Um, Aristotle, for example, had it that men create gods after their own image. So when in Genesis and Judaism man is created in the image of God, the Greeks put it entirely the other way around. God, or their gods, are created in the image of man, which is probably why John is so very keen from the very beginning of his gospel to describe the pre-existence of God in the wonderful way that he does. In the beginning was the word. And one of John's main aims is to establish the divinity of Christ, the word made flesh dwelling among us. Other gospel writers write about 20 miracles. With John, it's just seven, uh, eight if you include the resurrection. And John makes it entirely clear why he's being so selective. 
towards the end of his gospel, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. And then again, in just the last couple of verses of his gospel, he engagingly expresses how very selective he's been. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. So many that if every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world wouldn't have room for the books that would have been written. So we can expect every miracle to be illustrating some different aspect of Christ's divinity and to encourage us in our faith. John's gospel is especially challenging for us to fully appreciate nowadays because he makes use of a lot of symbolism in ways that frankly seem pretty irrelevant I think to many of our modern minds but would have meant much more to uh, people of his day. For example the number seven was taken by people of the time and not just Jews as a number which was representative of divine completeness so John reports seven miracles he reports seven I am's of Jesus and seven crops crops up in other contexts as well. And I'm sure all this would have been very convincing to John's original audience and to others in succeeding generations who have sort of anarchy, um, uh, 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 crossword minds. I, I could get too easily lost at this stage uh, by struggling to make sense of the symbolism of uh, John's gospel. And I am not discounting it. Uh, but what is there that we can grasp today and what is there that it's within my ability to explain? Well, let's go for the simple stuff. Liz read us the story of the first miracle. It's very straightforward. Here we are right at the beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry. In just the past few days, he's called his disciples. And now his first miracle almost seems to happen by accident, doesn't it? It's as unimportant and unspectacular as helping to sort out what's essentially a domestic and social problem. Now, to run out of wine at a wedding in those days was probably a bit more embarrassing than if the same thing happened to us today, but it's not that big a problem. In the scale of life and the universe, uh, of being the Messiah and saving the world, well, you know, to run out of wine at a wedding reception, it hardly breaks as a tragedy, does it? Other miracles seem far more important, like giving sight to someone who's been blind from birth, saving life, raising Lazarus from the dead. So what's Jesus demonstrating and what point is John making when of all the gospel writers he alone reports this miracle I don't know well maybe it's something as simple as to say that Jesus is interested in the minute details of our lives Jesus's first miracle was to provide the solution 
to a non-critical problem. Mary comes to Jesus with a simple, immediate concern. So can we. How do we talk to Christ? We do it in prayer. And perhaps our first lesson for this miracle is that prayer isn't like a divine 999 service. Jesus isn't sitting at a heavenly switchboard getting so swamped with nuisance calls that there's a risk he'll overlook uh, the bigger things uh, that he's asking God to do on our behalf. We are God's children, and one of the strongest images we can have of God is that God is our Father, as every father ideally should be. Later on in Jesus' ministry, there was a time when the disciples began to behave well, almost as though celebrity minders, uh, shooing away children and people they thought might be bothering Jesus. And Jesus responds with that wonderful rebuke, doesn't he? Let the children come to me and for forbid them not. For uh, how, uh, how does the authorised version have it? For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And Mary's request to Jesus demonstrates her confidence that he's interested in these small things of life. And even if the importance of his main mission isn't yet evident, as Jesus puts it, his time is not yet come, he instantly responds. How, how likely are we to behave like Mary and use prayer to bring our request to Christ? It's not that there's a right or a wrong way to pray. Some people like to link their prayers with a physical posture. They like to kneel. Others pray at the start or the end of the day or do both. Uh, what a lot of people say is that they're inclined to pray at other than fixed times, uh, that they pray while driving the car. I remember meeting someone who hated travelling on the London Underground, but had made it tolerable and useful by getting in the habit of using tube journeys as prayer times. And what Mary shows us here is a relationship that we too can develop with Jesus, of asking for his help, immediately we come across problems and the problems don't have to be massive ones either. And I know many of us here this morning already have uh, lots of practice of this, but uh, I and maybe others of us can do with a bit of improvement. Uh, when, when my daughters were young, there used to be an irritating expression that parents who were far too busy to spend much time with their children were apt to use. They talked about the importance of spending quality time with their children. I don't know whether parents talk about uh, it nowadays, but I think that most parents and children know that it's the casual conversations as you're giving them a lift to it somewhere in the car or doing something else together that are often the most revealing and become the most important in building a strong relationship. And one way we can develop our faith is by getting to the habit of bringing the small irritations, difficulties, and joys uh, of life to Jesus. Then 
maybe a, a, another lesson for us th this morning. John is very precise. He tells us that there were six jars of water. By the way, if you're into symbols, whilst seven is divine perfection, six is the symbol of mankind. So those empty, cold, clay jars had been designed to carry water. And the water would usually be used for ritual cleansing. Jesus asks the servants to fill these six jars brimful with water. We can do the calculation. Somewhere around 150 gallons of water become 150 gallons of wine. Well, it must have been quite a party. The best wine as well. Maybe the Chateau Latour of its day. More than enough for everyone. And uh, though excessive drinking was as frowned on then as it is now, I really can't believe that one or two of the guests couldn't have been had up that night for being drunk in charge of a donkey. So... Here we are, right at the outset of Jesus' ministry. Uh, and uh, here's a sign demonstrating that the water of ritual and tradition of the Jewish law has been transformed by Christ to become the celebratory wine of the new covenant uh, and the sheer exuberant quality of divine generosity. As Jesus said elsewhere, I am come so that you may have life and so that you may live it to the full. And uh, then again, because reading St. John's Gospel in particular is a bit like peeling an onion. There's an another layer of significance where Jesus tells Mary his time has not yet come uh, and the extent to which this miracle looks forward to the greater miracle of our salvation as Jesus offers his disciples wine at the uh, last supper saying it's a symbol of the shedding of his blood now a, a lot of very important biblical scholars have interpreted the details of this miracle in ways that are downright contradictory uh, some Protestants can't resist seeing Jesus' words to Mary uh, as a polite but very decisive put-down. And in case we don't get their point, they go on to indicate the error of Eastern Orthodox and Roman churches in putting Mary so close to the heart of their Christian faith. Uh, on the other hand, of course... Roman Catholic theologians use exactly the same incident recorded in exactly the same way to emphasise the centrality of Mary to uh, the event and to Christ's mission. So I think I'd prefer to leave what seemed to my mind to be the more arcane and uh, uh, divisive interpretations and go for more obvious meanings. The strength of Mary's faith is shown in the way that she immediately goes and instructs the servant. She's clearly accepted what Jesus has said to her. And our relationship with Christ is surely meant to be one where we're 
willing to bring ourselves and our daily lives and problems to him and then are willing to respond in obedience to what we come to know he asks us to do. Earlier on, I mentioned the particular focus of John's gospel, how that he's written these things so that we might believe. Now, when John says he's written his gospel so that people might believe, the English language doesn't quite do justice to the tense of the verb. It can be translated, I understand, in two ways. To start believing, that is to move from lack of belief to become a believer. But he's also written his gospel so that people might continue to believe. If you're at a stage where you feel for the first time Jesus might have a role in your life, John's message is clear. In, in chapter 3 of his gospel, in verse 16, we get a summary of it. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And what if we feel we're Christians and active followers of Jesus already? Well, John's message is just as much for us. Once a Christian, always Christian, may be true, but it's not the whole truth. Uh, when you and I originally became Christians, yes, we gave ourselves to God. But let me put it another way. When we became Christians, we gave everything that we knew and understood about ourselves at that time to God. That is, everything we knew and understood God to be. As we gain more experience in life and in our Christian walk, we get to understand more about ourselves and what we're truly like. And we also begin to learn more and understand more about Jesus Christ and the nature of God. So there's an ongoing work of belief for us to engage in, to make sure that our faith grows. So we bring the person that we are today to the Lord as he reveals himself to us today. The point about scripture and about the Christian life is that it's full of living messages from God. I, I've suggested some meanings for this first miracle, but I'd like to encourage you to reflect on what the Lord might be saying to you. you. You might hear another message that's more relevant to your particular circumstances this morning. In one sense, you could say that the first miracle John records is no more, and indeed no less, than uh, the miracle that happens every year in nature. It's just that the time scale is slightly different. The vine drinks the water, <laughs> The water becomes the wine. If so, then maybe this miracle is a reminder of what we can so easily take for granted, that nature responds to divine creativity in producing its abundance 
um, I refer you back to the first hymn that we sang this morning, How Great Thou Art. Uh, if this is so, then a natural and appropriate response this morning is just simple gratitude to God for his unstinting generosity. Maybe the message uh, for us this morning is to get into the habit of staying close to Christ, to turn the water of uh, ritual day-to-day routine into celebratory wine, as that hymn writer put it, that daily round, the common task may furnish all we need to ask, going on to say how the routine of life may be transformed into a road that daily brings us nearer to God. And you see, then we, like Jesus, can turn water into wine. Uh, Let's continue our reflection as we stand and sing our closing hymn together. Mary. (laughs) 